there was a little patch of brush and branches and leaves right between us. When I turned around, he was just right there. I mean, we were literally nose to nose. His, I swear his eyes went wide, mine went wide, and I think it was just a knee-jerk reaction on his part. If you've spent time in the backcountry, it is surely a moment you've thought about. How would it play out? What would you do if you found yourself in this particular worst-case scenario moment? I fully admit I'm prone to fatalistic thinking and can't help but picture what i do if, say, the engines failed when on a flight, a flash flood raced through a canyon I was exploring, an avalanche began beneath my skis, or a herd of elk stampeded toward our tent. Okay, a version of that one did actually happen to us in the Marble Mountain Wilderness several years back, but thankfully the elk herd cut left before they reached us. So luckily, I haven't had the opportunity to fully test my will to survive. But I can't help but wonder, what would I do if I found myself alone in the wilderness and literally nose to nose with a bear? Welcome to the Backcountry Beat, the podcast about nature, adventure, and stewardship from Backcountry Press, streaming to you from a redwood forest in Humboldt County, California. This spring, my husband, Michael Kaufman, spent an afternoon catching up with Ken DeCamp, one of our Backcountry Press authors and photographers. They were working on edits for the next printing of Ken's Wildflower Guide, and Ken shared this story with Michael. We've crafted it into the first episode of our podcast, The Backcountry Beat. Thanks for listening. Ken DeCamp is no stranger to the Trinity Alps wilderness of northwestern California's Klamath Mountains. He grew up in them, exploring their meadows, hiking their peaks, and fly fishing their lakes. At four months old, he rode atop his dad's pack for his first backpacking trip. At age 10, he was off on his first solo backpacking trip for multiple nights. And by age 12, he knew most of the Trinity Alps and neighboring Russian wilderness by heart. As an adult, he had a 38-year career with the USDA Forest Service in the region. And since he was a kid, he's been photographing flowers. The Klamath Mountains are a biodiversity hotspot, home to an astonishing variety of plants. And for the past few decades, Ken has been on a mission to find and photograph their flowers in peak bloom in every nook and cranny, which is how he found himself nose-to-nose with a bear on August 15th of 2020 with his camera and his backpack in the mountains he has loved for a lifetime. <laughs> okay, well, <clears throat> um, it was on a Saturday, uh, August 15th, and um, I had decided to uh, take a hike up to East Fork Lakes and uh, check out that relic stand of uh, quaking aspen up there below the lakes and um, it was a hot day it was a really hot day uh, I had not gotten too far when I when I found a, a nice little stand of a, a new wildflower I'd never seen before and uh, so I shot that and then I started up the trail and it's very steep um, it's one of those trails where you um, basically doing baby steps because it's very steep and gravelly, uh, easy to slip, even with good vibrant soles. So <clears throat> I got above uh, the worst part of the trail, if there's a worst part, and um, headed up past Buck's Ranch, 
uh, which was abandoned many, many years ago, and um, headed on up towards the lakes. Got to a point uh, where I was uh, running out of water, so I stopped at the last creek below the lakes to get water, fill my water bottle. And uh, I dropped my pack and put my camera down, um, stepped down into the creek. It's about a maybe two and a half, three foot drop. Stepped down into the creek uh, to fill my water bottle. Uh, filled it, took a few drinks, uh, stepped back up to my pack, put the water bottle away, slung the pack up over my shoulder and, and uh, reached down, grabbed my camera, slung that up. And when I turned around, uh, there was a bear right there. This was a black bear, not a grizzly. In California, they say the only grizzly bear is on the flag, as the last one in this state was spotted in 1924. Californians surely know this, but hey, you could be listening from anywhere, so just want to make sure we're on the same page here. According to the nonprofit educational organization, the North American Bear Center, the 750,000 black bears of North America kill less than one person per year on average. For comparison, men ages 18 to 24 are 167 times more likely to kill someone. Most attacks by black bears are defensive reactions to a person who is too close, which is an easy situation to avoid. Ken's story is a story of an encounter, not an attack. Clearly, Ken did not intend to be this close to the bear, and the bear did not intend to be quite so close to Ken either. There was a bear right there. It was a young one, 180, maybe 200 pounds, you know, hard to tell. He was in pretty good shape, um, but he was right there, right in front of me. And I think what I had done was, uh, because it was so hot and that whole hillside there is solid brush, no shade or anything except in the willows and the alders right next to the creek. And I think I had just, maybe he was taking a nap. Uh, <clears throat> However that turns out. Anyway, when I turned around, we were practically nose to nose and um, I startled him. It, there was a little patch of brush and branches and leaves right between us. When I turned around, he was just right there. I mean, we were literally nose to nose. His, I swear his eyes went wide, mine went wide. And I think it was just a knee jerk reaction on his part that he, took a swipe at me, uh, caught me on the forehead right above my left eye. <clears throat> and it's amazing how strong a bear is. <laughs> the force that I ducked and uh, it just, uh, somehow one of his claws or something just drug right down through my, my forehead, right to my skull, uh, through my eyelid, spun me around and knocked me back into the creek. A head first two-and-a-half to three-foot drop into the creek. Um, I hit the rocks and uh, uh, knocked myself out, and I was out laying in the creek um, for probably ten minutes, maybe a little longer. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure exactly what time it was when I, when I went down, but when I finally came to, I lay in there in the water washing over my mouth and my left eye, and I'm bleeding like crazy. Ken was nearly fully submerged in the creek. He had a number of very lucky breaks here, an amazing one being that he was not an inch or two deeper where water would have flowed over his entire mouth 
He also takes blood thinners and was bleeding like crazy. Um, and it took me a few seconds to orient myself. Um, I, it was like I couldn't figure out what happened. You know, yeah. I, I, was told, I was dazed and uh, I, I, I'm sitting up in waist deep water uh, looking around thinking, what in the heck? And I finally, um, it, it dawned on me what had, uh, what had occurred. And so I'm looking around to see if that bear's still hanging around there anywhere, and he wasn't anywhere in sight. So I crawled up out of the creek and uh, uh, kind of collected my thoughts a little bit, and I'm just, uh, blood's just pouring, head wound, just pouring out of this wound on my head. I thought I'd lost my eye because there was just this huge thing hanging down over my, I could not see anything out of it. So I, <clears throat> I had a handkerchief in my pack. I put that up to uh, hold it against uh, the wound and I'm sweating like crazy. <coughs> um, and I thought, man, I gotta get out of here. And I, all of a sudden a headache hit um, and the nausea from the concussion. I had a severe concussion. <coughs> I. Immediately, I got maybe 50 yards. I'd seen where the bear had gone over the top of me and down the trail and then cut back down to the creek. <clears throat> so I, anyway, I kind of put all that aside and I started, I had to get out of there because I knew the, the bleeding was, uh, it was really bad. Ken says his dad told him many years ago that you do what you have to do no matter what the situation because you always have to come home. When he says he put a lot aside, what he means is that survival mode set in, and all he could think about was trying to staunch the bleeding and get on his feet so he could get back to his truck several miles away. So I, <clears throat> I was able to follow the trail okay with one eye um, back to Buck's Ranch, but just past Buck's Ranch, the trail dives into the trees and, um, and the deep shade uh, and with only one eye working and sweating so much, I lost the trail because it's just not used much anymore. I totally lost it and I'm casting around for it to see if I could find it and finally it just wasn't working. I, I could not see it. I was sick to my stomach. I was throwing up like every 30 feet, 40 feet. And my head was pounding. <clears throat> so I, I knew where I was and I knew how to get back to the road without the trail. So I just the steepest part of it, I mean, it's really steep country. <laughs> I just found the steepest slope. I sat down and just started on, on my butt, just blasting through trees and over rocks and poison oak and everything else. Um, that was probably a good, oh, by the time I wove my way, wove my way around through all of down trees and everything, probably a good three quarters, maybe a mile, <clears throat> until I finally saw what I thought was the road, the East Fork Canyon Creek Road down below me. By that time, I'm, uh, I'm surprised my shorts survived because I was literally on my butt this whole way. And man, I'm just shooting down the hill on my backside. <clears throat> um, and right above the road, I hit a cut bank. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good 20 feet, man, yeah. just straight down, right under the rocks and the manzanita. Uh, I didn't bother to, to determine which manzanita it was. I hit that so hard, and uh, 
I was bruised and nasty and I'm trying to crawl out of there through all that manzanita and everything. Finally got to the road and by then I was pretty blasted. Um, and I, I was really dehydrated on top of everything. I was trying to take a little bit of water as I could and every time I'd take a sip of water I'd throw up. So I got to the road and I, I was, I just about had it. So I got across the road and I just laid down on the shoulder there and I bet I slept for maybe 10, 15 minutes <clears throat> uh, until the headache just, would, just came back. At, well, never left, but it was really getting ferocious at that point. So I, I stood up and I'm looking and I'm thinking, okay, is my car down the road or up the road? I had to make a decision, and so I, I just, I just determined that it was I had better I got to go one way, so I I decided to go up the road. Uh, every thirty feet, I was having to stop. I was so sick, and uh, it took me an hour and a half, a good hour and a half, when I finally spotted that silver flash of my truck through the trees. And I was I was really thankful. <coughs> so. But even at that, it was so slow getting over to it, and I was, like I say, hot, de dehydrated, pounding headache, sick to my stomach. I finally got to my truck, and I threw everything in the in the back, and I climbed in, turned on the air conditioning, and and uh, sat there for probably about ten minutes, you know, to cool down a little bit. <coughs> and um, so then I thought, well, I'm going to drive down to the Canyon Creek Road and uh, see how that goes and I was able to do it but I, everything was just covered with blood I it was just dripping all over the seat and it wouldn't stop I couldn't do anything to stop it so I got down to the Canyon Creek Road finally and I thought okay I'm gonna get out to 299 and and maybe I can you know call somebody from there by that time it was just um, survival mode just set in and I I, <clears throat> I got to 299 and I thought you know I can make it to Weaverville so I did not want to be on the highway with anybody coming or going, you know, just because I didn't know what was. So every time I'd see somebody coming or, or come up behind me or coming uh, towards me, I would pull completely off the highway and let them go past before I got back on the, on the road again. So I managed to get uh, to Weaverville. Uh, I got just past Weaverville to the rest stop there and uh, uh, had another horrible bout of sickness and throwing up and uh, I I have a long association with Mercy Hospital <laughs> everybody in my family seems to work there so I, I thought you know I've got to get to Mercy Hospital and I just hunkered down and and uh, went forward it was really slow it took me almost I don't know, two and a half three hours something like that to get into Reading, and that was a little dicey with all the cars on the road and everything, but I did make it to Mercy. I pulled into the emergency room parking lot, got out of the truck, and literally stumbled over to the corner where you'd turn to go into the entrance, and that was it. I didn't have anything left. I, I stopped leaning on a uh, post there, a barricade, and I was just throwing up like crazy. I finally, I just went down on my knees, and there were three uh, Shasta, uh, Reading police officers there. I, I don't know exactly what they thought they were dealing with, but they came running over, and uh, 
I, I explained to him a little bit about what happened. One of them ran in and got an attendant and a gurney, and, and um, I got inside. Uh, they took me immediately into the emergency room, uh, got me in, uh, into the main part of the emergency room where a doctor could take a look at me, and I had nurses all over the place. They <laughs> they took my boots off, and my boots were just loaded with gravel and dirt and pine needles and whatever, and it poured out all over the emergency room. <laughs> and I remember apologizing to him, and the nurse looked at me, the head nurse there. She said, oh, believe me, we've seen worse. <laughs> so wow. they got the pain under control for me, and um, they uh, immediately sent me in for uh, CAT scans and MRIs and x-rays and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> um, and once they got me all cleaned up and, and presentable as much as possible, got my eye cleaned up, uh, found out I had not lost my eyeball. It was just a big glob of, you know, yeah. stuff hanging there. <laughs> uh, so they got me cleaned up and got me into a room, and um, that was the last thing I remember for probably about six hours. And uh, uh, when I uh, when I finally woke up, I, I thought, "Oh, geez, I got to call my wife." <laughs> no clue where I'm at. I'm I, sometimes I can be really late coming back from these hikes in the woods. I called her. She said, "Where are you?" <laughs> I said, "Well, I'm up at Mercy Hospital." What? And the rest is history. I was in there for a few days, uh, twice. Yeah. Uh, had to go back for uh, further treatment. And uh, and a surgeon uh, stitched up my forehead and eyelid. And uh, uh, he did a great job. Uh, hardly tell that there's any, I mean, if you look really close. Um, I did fracture my skull, and there's a triangular piece that pushed its way into the, uh, I forget what they call it. It's like the... the sack that encases your brain. They were a little worried about that, but they decided to uh, not do anything right away to see if it would heal on its own, and it did. So so here I am a few months later, and uh, I'm doing pretty good. Um, I uh, still got some vision problems. My left eye doesn't want to coordinate itself with my right eye just yet. It is getting better. Uh, I've got new scleral contact lenses that uh, have helped a lot uh, with the vision issue. And I'm having some surgery to my left knee here pretty soon to take care of a torn meniscus that happened when I fell. So, other than that. Well, you look great. I'm <laughs> I'm ready to get back out there. I've been out yeah. doing some hiking, but uh, yeah, I'm ready to go back out and man, hopefully not do that again. But Yeah, that's one heck of a story. Ken says an experience like this won't keep him from returning to his backcountry adventures in the Trinity Alps or anywhere else. Life is too short and there's too much to experience to ever be fearful of something like this happening again. Ken's story has evolved the way I think through a scenario like this. I've seen plenty of beautiful bears in my time, mostly from a distance. Last summer I watched in awe at sunset as one effortlessly descended the crazy steep talus slope of a north-facing cirque above the aptly named Bear Lake in the Siskiyou Wilderness. I've sipped tea at sunrise while watching a bear engulf mouthfuls of spruce tips for breakfast. 
I've awoke in the night to find a bear and her cub absolutely destroying our plum tree, trying to reach every last fruit. Bears are a presence in both the front country and back country. But most often, what I have seen are bear butts as they bound away in the opposite direction of wherever I am. Whatever admittedly anxious fantasies I have indulged about a close encounter with a bear have focused more on the actual incident, what it's like being nose-to-nose with the bear, and not so much on the aftermath of, as Ken's experience shows, could just be a fleeting moment. And that it is in the aftermath when one really could be called to dig deeper into their pockets of courage, endurance, resourcefulness, and grit than they may have ever needed to dig before. I'm Allison Pokemamba. Thanks for inviting Ken and I into your audio landscape. We hope you've enjoyed our first episode of the Backcountry Beat. You can subscribe wherever you're listening to this if you'd like to catch the next one. We asked Ken to tell us a bit more about the project he was working on when he encountered the bear, Creekside, on that hot August day last summer. Listen on if that interests you as well. So, so how about a quick summary of the new book? Oh, the, the new book. Uh, really excited about uh, this next edition of our book. Um, during the, la- the last uh, three years, I've managed to get out and shoot um, about 109 new species. Uh, a friend of mine said, you know, before you're done, we're going to have to have a pack mule to haul this thing around. You won't be able to carry it in a pack. But uh, um, I was able to find a lot of really nice stuff this year, uh, especially up in the marbles and um, in the Trinities and on the Trinity Divides. Some really, uh, I didn't get everything. Uh, you know, the, the bear thing kind of cut my season short, and I had planned on getting um, another 10 or 15. Uh, Julie Kirstead was going to get out with me and... and uh, we were going to track down some new things, but uh, <clears throat> it's looking really good. I got a lot of beautiful photographs this year and uh, this last three years, I should say. Uh, so I'm excited about it, I, and I've had several comments from people that are looking forward to uh, the next edition coming out. And uh, I've had a lot of neat emails uh, from people that have used the book mm-hmm. and uh, really like it. They, they love the way... Um, it was put together and the printing uh, was especially nice for a field guide like yeah. this. Uh, so, you know, hopefully here pretty soon. Yeah, and a, a slight name change? A slight name change, yeah. We, um, we thought long and hard about this. Um, it was, um, it came from Julie Kirstead pretty much. Well, actually Julie Knorr also. They both mentioned that because the book uh, is basically a wildflower book or a guide to the Klamath Mountains uh, that we needed to be a little more inclusive um, and not make it uh, a wildflower guide to the Trinity Alps. All of, that, all of those wilderness areas are all part and parcel of the Klamath Mountains. And uh, also because they've added all that limestone country uh, above Shasta Lake to the Klamath Mountain uh, regime that... Um, uh, we've added quite a few from that neck of the woods also. Uh, 
So the new name, I think, is more fitting. Um, we, uh, I, I was a little surprised that you that you knew about it already. <laughs> Julie warned me it was coming. Oh, did she? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I was a little. Uh, I didn't know exactly how that would work out for yeah. for backcountry, but. No, that's good. Yeah, I'm, I, that, I think that's gonna be great. Backcountry Press published the first edition of Ken's book in 2017 titled Wildflowers of the Trinity Alps, including the Marble Mountain Wilderness, Russian Wilderness, and Trinity Divide. The expanded second edition is called Wildflowers of California's Klamath Mountains, including Castle Crags, Marble Mountain, Russian, and Trinity Alps wilderness areas. It features 124 additional species, subspecies, and varieties of wildflowers, bringing the total to a whopping 629 all with full-color photos. We are so excited about this more inclusive edition. We're obviously also tremendously grateful that Ken survived his bear encounter and is back to doing what he loves, where he loves. Seeking out and photographing wildflowers of the Klamath Mountains. One of his specialties is finding flowers that are tiny and easily overlooked. The kind you have to get down on your belly and practically eat dirt to observe. So, don't be surprised if you encounter Ken sprawled out across a backcountry trail this summer, camera in hand. Ask him what he found. I'm sure he would love to show you. The second edition of Ken's book will be available in May of 2021 at backcountrypress.com and at your favorite Northern California bookstore. <laughs>